0: And as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that you would help us, that we, your people, would never take the glory of the forgiveness of sins for granted and give us fresh eyes, O God, to see the wonders of the gospel. Help us, Father, to grow even in this hour in our love for you as we think about Jesus and what he came to do, that our hearts would joyfully respond with a greater love for him. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. We know that you have sovereignly brought them here this morning to hear your word. And so we pray that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would grant them life today, that they might believe and so be saved. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, for his righteousness is our only plea. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. You'll remember the last two Sundays we have uh, covered passages, two passages, about Jesus and John the Baptist. And two weeks ago it was Jesus reassuring John. John, as he's riding away in Herod's prison cell, Well, he begins to have some doubts about who Jesus was. And so Jesus reassures him, Yes, John, I am the one who is to come. I'm exactly who you thought I was, the Messiah. And So don't be be offended by me. Don't stumble because of me. The prophecies about what Messiah would do when he came, they're all being fulfilled in me. And then last week it was, Jesus defending John the Baptist to the crowds, going to bat for his forerunner. John's no reed shaken by the wind. Uh, This man is a true prophet. And not only that, he's more than a prophet. He's the greatest man who's ever lived in the sense that he goes right before Jesus to prepare the way for him. And so he is uniquely privileged in redemptive history in that sense. Now you might think that with a prophet that great introducing the savior of the world that the crowds would then unilaterally follow John and Jesus. That they would hear John's message of the repentance of sins and then respond by looking to the one to whom John would point Jesus, the savior who would take away those sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But of course that doesn't happen. God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so some would respond positively to John and therefore Jesus, right? Turning to him in repentance and faith. But a lot of the people of this generation, well, they just made excuses. John, he he has a demon, Jesus, he's a a glutton and a drunkard. And we see that contrast between those two groups very clearly in verses 29 and 30. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so it's, It's the tax collectors, the kinds of people that Jewish society would have looked down on. That's who's embracing John and Jesus and the gospel. And it's the Pharisees, right, like the religious elite of the day, who by and large rejected John and Jesus and the gospel. And that brings us to our story for today. You'll notice if you look at verse 36 and following, Luke doesn't give us any time or location markers here. In the other narratives in this chapter, for example, if you look down at verse 11, right, Luke tells us soon afterward there's a time marker. He went to a town called Nain. There's a location marker. Uh, but Luke doesn't give us that kind of information here. And I think that's because the connection between our narrative for this week and what comes directly before, it's not so much geographical or chronological, but it's thematic. Like last week, we saw, in general, the religious outcasts of society, they're the ones embracing Jesus, the religious elite of the society, they're rejecting Jesus. Well, this week, we see a specific real-life example of that playing out. So look along in your Bibles, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This is the word that God has for us this morning. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now before we get into the details of our story, let me make just kind of one point of clarification up front that I think will be helpful for those of you who are familiar with the four Gospels. There's a very similar story to this one, and it appears in the other three Gospels, right? It's in Matthew 26, it's in Mark 14, and John 12, in which Jesus is also anointed by a woman with the contents of an alabaster jar. But there's also some major differences between that story and our story. Uh, That story happens in the last week of Jesus' life, uh, down south by Jerusalem. Uh, This one happens much earlier in his Galilean ministry way up north. In that story, John tells us that the woman who anointed him was Mary of Bethany, Here, we're not given a name at all. That story happens at the house of a guy named Simon the leper. This one happens at the house of a guy named Simon the Pharisee. And before you say, well, two guys named Simon, that must be the same story. You need to realize there's like eight or nine different guys in the New Testament named Simon. Simon Peter, Simon the zealot, Simon the tanner, Simon the sorcerer, and so on. It was definitely a, a trendy baby name back then. In that story, the anointing leads to a discussion about how much the perfume cost. In our story, the discussion, uh, the anointing rather leads to a discussion about the forgiveness of sin. And so, similar stories. Uh, John even tells us that Mary of Bethany anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Right, very close similarities. But there's also enough differences between the two narratives that we can comfortably conclude that these were two distinct events. And so with that clarification in mind, right, so this story that we're looking at, this is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Let's look now at our text. So one of the Pharisees, find out later his name is Simon, one of the Pharisees invites Jesus over for a meal. Now from the way the scene is described, And we're going to get to that a little bit later. Like, this is not like cheese and crackers, light refreshments kind of thing. This is an all-out banquet. And Jesus is most likely the guest of honor. Now, why does Simon invite Jesus over for a banquet? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. But look at verse 36. Luke explicitly identifies Simon, even before he gives us his name, He's one of the Pharisees. And what has Luke already told us in his gospel about the Pharisees and what they think about Jesus? Luke 6-7. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And so he Heals the man with the withered hand. And at the end of the narrative, Luke six eleven, they were filled, the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They really hated him. And then, of course, right, last week's passage, you'll remember verse 30, we already read this. The Pharisees rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They, as a whole, rejected Jesus. And so, if this particular Pharisee has noble motives in asking Jesus over for dinner. Like like he's invited Jesus to come into his house because he's got a genuine desire to learn from him and worship him. Well, he would certainly be an outlier among the Pharisees. And Luke's given us absolutely no clues that that's the case here. Rather, I think, given how Luke has presented the Pharisees to us so far in this gospel— that we're supposed to assume that there's some skeptical motives going on here. Is this Jesus guy really a great prophet, like everybody's saying that he is? Or even some sinister motives at play here. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can find some way to bring him down. And as we're going to see in a bit, Simon's actions and his attitudes in this narrative, well, they support that line of thinking. But regardless of what the reason for the banquet is, Jesus, Simon, and you've got all these other invited guests, presumably other Pharisees, because Pharisees only hang with other Pharisees. And so they find themselves gathered around the dinner table. Now one thing we ought to know about these kind of banquets in first century uh, Palestine is that uh, they were often like quasi-public events. And so they'd be held in a, in a large room with the doors open or maybe even in a courtyard, like an inner courtyard that's outdoors, uh, so that anybody from the town who wanted to could come and observe what was going on. And so you had the invited guests, right, and they would be around the table. But then you'd have others around the perimeter, uninvited guests, who just wanted to come and listen in on all, all the discussion, especially with an honored teacher like Jesus, Remember that everywhere that Jesus went, these huge crowds would be following him. And so it really wouldn't surprise us if there was a pretty substantial group of people watching this banquet. Now to us, right, that's kind of weird. Like, please do not ever come to my apartment uninvited to watch us eat with other people. That would be really awkward. Back then, it would have been a common thing. And so among the uninvited guests that day, look at verse 37. You've got a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now that terminology there is not to distinguish her from the other women of the city who had never sinned. You know, all have sinned. And so all are sinners. But no, that word there, sinner, that's like a title. Like she was well known for her wickedness. She had an established reputation for her immorality. What exactly her sin was, we don't know for sure. Maybe she was a prostitute. But what we do know is that her past lifestyle was notorious among the people. And so all people are sinners. But this woman, she's a sinner. But the shocking thing here, right? The shocking thing that makes Luke say, behold... It's not that people like her exist. It's that a sinner like her would show up to this Pharisee's house where she would never, under any circumstances, have been welcome. Remember, the Pharisees are separatists, right? They're all about keeping the law and keeping your distance from people who don't keep the law. And so the Pharisees absolutely despised, hated sinners like her. You remember Luke 5.30? The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees are trying to rebuke Jesus here. You can't be associating with sinners. We Pharisees, we would never associate with people like that. Sinners. What are you doing, Jesus? And so one of the worst things at least in their minds, one of the worst things that they could say about Jesus, remember from last week, is that he's a friend of sinners. He hangs out with sinners. So this is one of the reasons why it's been so great to study through this gospel sequentially. Because as those who have been studying and reading Luke, like we pretty much already know given all that Luke has presented to us thus far in his gospel, like, we know exactly how Simon and Jesus are going to respond to this woman. Simon, the Pharisee, oh, he's going to despise her because she is a sinner. And Pharisees reject sinners. But Jesus, the Savior, he's going to minister to her because she's a sinner And Jesus is a friend of sinners. Now why has this woman come to this banquet? Bit of conjecture here, because Luke's silent on this. I think it's reasonable to assume that she had previously heard Jesus preach the gospel, and teach on the kingdom of God, and she believed, and so she was saved. Or she's been forgiven of her sins. And now she in a response of worship and adoration, well, she has come to honor Jesus. And so she brings with her her flask of ointment or perfume. And so her plan was probably to anoint Jesus's head with perfume. But as she steps out from the outer mass of the uninvited, she steps into the inner circle now of the distinguished guests, and all kinds of craziness is about to happen. Now, As you picture this scene in your mind's eye, if you have in your mind, like a modern day dinner scene with people sitting in chairs around a dining table, like none of this is going to make any sense. Like, is this woman like crawling under the chairs? Like, what is she doing? How does she get into his feet? Like, this makes no sense. You see, back then, at these banquets, at these big meals, Uh, they wouldn't be sitting in chairs at a high table. Uh, They'd basically be lying down at at a low table. And so the gospel writers will often refer to diners reclining at table. That's what that's referring to. And so there would be this short table, kind of in the the middle of the room, and they would all lay on their sides uh, on these couches, uh, kind of like this. So they would be laying on their sides, Imagine this is a couch. They would rest on their left arm to support themselves and then their right arm is free to grab food and eat. Right? This is what it means to recline at table. And so their, their heads, right, their mouths and their arms right, would be inside, right, facing into the table. But very importantly for this story, the rest of their body, including, of course, their feet, would be facing outwards. And so now, right, we can begin to picture this. Here comes this woman towards the middle of the room where the distinguished guests are around the table, and she wants to anoint Jesus' head with some perfume. But before she can get close enough to him to do that, while she's still standing behind him at his feet, well, she just loses it. Perhaps as she draws near to her Savior... She's overcome with this, this sense of her own sin in the presence of his holiness. You guys remember Peter's reaction in the boat? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And mixed with that, perhaps, is this overwhelming sense of joy and thankfulness that in spite of all that she had done, and as bad as everybody else in the room thought she was, like surely she knew her sin better than anybody else did. And in spite of all of that, Jesus forgave her. And so whatever the mix of emotions was, this woman just loses it. This isn't like when your eyes get a little bit watery watching A Walk to Remember or something like that. This is one of those messy cries. The tears are flowing out of her eyes. Look at verse 38 where it says her tears wet his feet. That's the same Greek word for when it rains. And so this, again, it's not just like one or two drops. This isn't a little bit of moisture in her eyes. This is a stream of tears that are falling out of her eyes onto Jesus' feet. She is bawling, she is sobbing, and his feet are getting drenched with those tears. Now that was not her original plan, to cry all over Jesus' feet like this. And so she realizes that she's getting his feet all wet Well, she didn't bring a towel. Again, this wasn't her plan. And so, unplanned and spontaneously, she just gets down and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And while she's there, remember, he's lying on his side. He's lying with his feet out. She's by his feet. While she's there, she begins to kiss his feet. Not a romantic kiss or anything like that, but kisses of just humble Adoration, reverence, worship, kind of like Psalm chapter 2, kiss the sun, right? That's exactly what she's doing here. And then to top it all off, she breaks open her alabaster jar and she just begins to anoint his feet with the perfume, not his head, which was, again, most likely her initial desire, but his feet in a sense of humility, perhaps, unworthiness, lowliness, she just settles for anointing his feet. But remember that all of this is being done in the middle of a banquet. And so surely at this point, right, everybody stopped eating, conversation has ceased, and now all eyes in the room are on this woman and Jesus. And the guests must have been in utter shock. I mean, first of all, she's not even supposed to be here. The very presence of an unclean sinner amongst righteous Pharisees like us, like that in itself is a great offense. Well, then you add to that everything that she's been doing here, touching Jesus' feet, letting down her hair to dry it, kissing his feet, well, all of that would have been viewed as Completely inappropriate. Socially unacceptable. Breaking every single cultural norm in the book. And so Simon, remember he's one of the Pharisees. Well, he thinks to himself probably what they were all thinking. Verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for She's a sinner. I mean you can just hear the disdain in his thoughts. What sort of woman is this? Ugh, she's she's that sort of woman. She's a sinner. But his disdain isn't limited to just this woman. It's also for Jesus. Jesus is no prophet. I mean, if he was, I mean, first of all, he would have known who this woman was. I know who this woman is, she's a sinner. But apparently Mr. True Prophet over there, he he has no idea who she is. If he did, I mean, no true prophet would be letting a sinner like her touch him. Again, I think we've been in Luke long enough to know exactly what's going to happen next. I mean, these Pharisees got to be careful having these secret thoughts around Jesus. You remember the story of the paralytic on the mat? Pharisees are questioning in their hearts, it says... And it says Jesus perceived their thoughts. Or the story about the man with the withered hand where the, the Pharisees are secretly trying to accuse him and it says Jesus knew their thoughts. And so we know exactly where this is going. Simon, I have something to say to you. We're like, oh, oh Simon, that's not good for you. And you see the irony here. Simon accuses Jesus in his heart of not being a true prophet because he doesn't know who the woman is. And Jesus is like, Simon, not only do I know who this woman is, I know who you are. I know exactly what you're thinking. And so let's have a little chat. Let's have a little chat about your thoughts. (laughs) Let's, Let's go into the very depths of your heart. And Jesus does that here by telling a story. Quick little parable. You've got two guys They both owe substantial amounts of money, uh, denarius, it's like a day's wage. And so uh, one guy basically owes about two months' worth of salary, and the other guy owes like 20 months' worth of salary. And neither guy can repay his debt. But the lender, realizing they can't pay, he just decides to forgive, just cancel both debts. And here's Jesus' question. Which of them will love him more? And Simon answers correctly. It's the the guy who owed more money. The guy who had the larger debt canceled. And then, here comes the hard application, Simon. Jesus applies the parable. Simon, do you see this woman? And then he recounts this woman's actions. Actions that disgusted Simon. And then he contrasts them Directly against what Simon did or didn't do for Jesus. And so Simon, right, you did not do what would have been customarily expected, especially for a guest of honor, right? To provide water for his feet. But this is a, a day and an age before paved roads, And and modern sanitation and socks and shoes and all that kind of stuff. And so feet, right, feet were typically disgusting with just dirt and grime and smells. I mean, even today, in our super sanitized world in which we all wear shoes outdoors, right, there's some people that come to your house and you just want to be like, friend, let me get you some water for your feet. Feet, generally speaking, are just not clean things. That would especially be true back then. And so it was an important part of hospitality, the washing of the feet. But Simon, Simon didn't do that. In contrast, this woman, Simon, do you see this woman? Well, this woman washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And Simon, you gave me no kiss. That would have been a a customary greeting back then. Right, greet one another with a holy kiss. You didn't give me that customary welcome. In contrast, Simon, do you see this woman? Well, she has kissed my feet in honor and reverence and humility. And again, Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, another customary practice of hospitality, but she, have you seen this woman? She anointed not just my head, but my feet, and not with common oil but with her expensive perfume. And so the very things that you are criticizing her in your heart for, those are the very things that you should have done for me. And those very things that you failed to do as my host, well, she's gone over the top, right, excessive, abundant in order to worship me. But, 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 I don't want you to miss this. The point here. Right, the point of all of this is not that Jesus is calling out Simon for bad manners. Right, like this is not about what does and does not constitute proper hospitality in that culture. No, Jesus is using hospitality to make a much larger and much more significant point. And you see that in verse 47. The contrast is not between good hospitality and bad hospitality. The contrast is between loving much and loving little. You've got this sinful woman. She is humbly, reverentially loving her Savior much. This woman truly loves Jesus, and the way her love manifests itself in this story is through this spontaneous but lavish worship. In contrast, Simon, he doesn't love Jesus at all. And the clearest way in which that lack of love manifests itself in this story is through his ignoring all the expected forms of hospitality. Simon, do you see this woman? You see, Simon is completely blind to who she really is. And what she's really doing, because he himself has no love for Jesus, Simon wouldn't recognize love for Jesus if it hit him in the face, or in the case of our story, right? If it happened right in front of him at his own banquet. So here's the main point of all of this, the main point of this entire narrative. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. We need to be careful here lest we misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that because she loved much that's why her sins are forgiven. No, rather he's saying her sins are forgiven. They've been forgiven. And the most visible marker, the clearest evidence that her sins are indeed forgiven is that she loves much. Well, how can we be sure of that? first just think about the parable that led to this whole discussion. It's not that the lender forgives the debts because the people who couldn't pay loved him much. No, it's the other way around. The debts were forgiven first and that's why, as a response to that, they love the lender. And even more clearly, look at verse 50. Jesus doesn't say to the woman, your love has saved you. No, it's Your faith has saved you. Your faith, faith in who I am, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the Savior who's come to seek and save the lost, that's what saved you. That's why your sins are forgiven, because God has granted you that faith in his Son. And it's as a natural response to that As an overflow of thanksgiving from the heart that understands that it's been forgiven, that she loved much. Brothers and sisters, we need to be crystal clear on this. Our love for God, our love for Jesus, however fervent, is not the cause of anything when it comes to our salvation. As a matter of fact, First John 4 tells us that God's love is the cause of our love. We love because he first loved us. And that's really, really good news for us. Just think about it. If our salvation depended on our love for Jesus, well, who among us has loved Jesus as well as we want to do? And who among us could ever have any assurance that we have loved him enough to be saved? Oh no, we love because he first loved us. But there's a flip side to that too. If we've truly experienced the forgiveness of sins, if God has truly done the miracle of regeneration in our hearts, if we really are new creations in Christ, well, love for Jesus adoration, a heart full of worship, well, that's necessarily got to follow. To put it another way, where there's no such love, like with Simon the Pharisee, well, he who is forgiven little loves little. I don't think that means that like, Simon loves Jesus, but just like a lot less than the sinful woman because he's not as bad of a sinner. I, I think that's missing the point. Jesus is pointing out here to Simon, hey, listen, you've got it all wrong. As one of the Pharisees, Simon is steeped in this culture of self-righteousness, thinking that he's right with God because of how good he is, how holy a life he lives. Simon thinks that he has sinned little. And so he doesn't need, he doesn't think he needs forgiveness at all. He's got such a small debt If any, they could just pay it off with some good works. Well, someone with that view, that incorrect view of the gospel, that incorrect view of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, that incorrect view of what Jesus has come to do, well, such a person is going to demonstrate their lack of salvation by loving little. Exactly what Simon does in this narrative. Now, we've been almost entirely focused on three characters here. You got Jesus, the woman, and Simon. But remember, there's a whole bunch of other people in the room. They're in full view of what's going on, they're hearing every single word of this back and forth. And they're saying to themselves, wait a minute, did he just say, did he just tell her that her sins are forgiven? You'll notice in the text, Jesus doesn't say, God has forgiven you of your sins. No, he takes that authority and he takes that prerogative upon himself. And so the crowd is shocked. Verse 49, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? Well, we know exactly who this is. Because when the people asked him the same exact question back in chapter 5, you remember what Jesus said. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Oh, we know exactly who this is. This is the Son of God. This is God incarnate. This is the Savior of the world. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, let me leave you with four takeaways from this story. Four things that I want you to just be thinking about even after we leave this place this morning. Takeaway number one, it's kind of long, but just hear me out here. The very idea that God would forgive our sins is just mind-boggling. Takeaway number one, the very idea that God would forgive our sins is just mind-boggling. Listen again to the parable that Jesus tells here. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. You know what's really interesting about this parable? It's so unrealistic. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Maybe, maybe if you borrow a few bucks from a friend, and he's kind and he's generous, maybe he'd forgive your debt. But two months' wages? 20 months' wages worth of debt to a professional money lender? I realize most of us living in the city, we don't have mortgages. But, but I think that's the best like modern-day analogy here. Imagine calling your bank. Suppose you had a mortgage and you call your bank and you say, Hey, Wells Fargo, listen, I got an idea for you. What if you just cancel my debt and we just call it even? They think that you're nuts. And so Jesus, this is a ridiculous premise in your parable. That a moneylender would just forgive the debts uh, that large. But that's kind of the point. It's ridiculous. Yes, and it's even more ridiculous that God would forgive sinners. I mean, just think about our debt to God because of our sin. It's not two months worth. It's not 20 months worth. It's an eternity's worth. Because all of our sin is against an eternal God. And so it is an unpayable debt for us, apart from an eternity of punishment in hell, because God is perfectly holy. And so, maybe this is the most important question in the universe how can a just and holy God forgive sin? the answer the only answer is in the gospel Where god sent his son his own son to die in the place of sinners sinners like you sinners like me sinners like this woman right jesus lived the perfect life that we never could live and he willingly went to the cross and bore all the sins of his people And there he suffers the full wrath of God in their place. He drinks down every single drop of the wrath of God that our sins deserve. And so God remains just because sin is punished. But God is also the justifier because he forgives the sins of his children because of what Christ did. And so that unpayable Insurmountable debt that we could never pay on our own. Well, that was truly forgiven at the cross. Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here it is by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, the point I am trying to make is this. As those who constantly, hopefully every day, read about and hear about and talk about the gospel, it's all too easy for our hearts to become very complacent about it. And we begin to take forgiveness for granted. Forgiveness, that's God's job. But no. No. May it never be so among us. May we always stand in awe and amazement that God would actually forgive sinners like us of our infinite debt and that he would do so at the cost of his only son. That in love for sinners like us, he gave his only son to make us righteous. Takeaway number one, the very idea that God would forgive our sins, it's just mind-boggling. Takeaway number two, there is no sinner too great for Jesus to save. Friend, if you're sitting there today, and, and you're hearing this gospel and you're hearing about this Jesus, but you're thinking, uh, I'm such a horrible person. My, my sins are, are so many. How could God ever save a wretch like me? Like, you have no idea the sins that I've committed. I really hope this narrative is speaking to you. I, I don't know the sins that you've committed, I don't know the sins that this woman committed. But I know that they were bad enough that she was a sinner. And yet Jesus assures her, this sinner, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute, so you're telling me, you're telling me that Jesus can save even me. Even all of the things that I've done, you're telling me that Jesus can save me. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying and much more importantly, that's exactly what the Bible says. Jesus can save this woman. Jesus can save tax collectors. Jesus can save wretches like me and like you whose great sins have brought us to the end of ourselves and have led us to cry out to him. Like the song says, our, our sins there are many. His mercy is more. And so, if our trust is in Christ, He blots out the greatest sins that we've committed. He remembers our sins no more. So that even this woman, a sinner, this woman, she can be told at the end of this narrative, Your faith has saved you, go in peace. Go in peace. This woman's conscience probably has been tormented for years and years because of the sins that she's committed. She's been shunned by society. She's a sinner, and yet she's able to go in peace. She can go in peace because she knows that though she has committed great sins, well, because of Christ, because of the forgiveness of sins, well, she's now at peace with the Holy God. And regardless of how others viewed her, And certainly, those Pharisees in the room probably continue to disdain her. But so what? In the eyes of her Savior, she was perfectly righteous. In the eyes of her Savior, she was perfectly clothed in his righteousness. And so she could go in peace. Takeaway number two, there is no sinner too great for Jesus to save. Takeaway number three, Jesus also saves the self-righteous. Maybe you're reading the story, you're, you're listening to this sermon, and you really can't relate to this sinful woman too much. Like, by God's grace, you haven't lived this life of profligate sinning and you haven't openly rebelled and and ran away from God. And so, people would not label you a sinner like this woman. Maybe of the two main characters in the story, you find yourself relating much more to Simon the Pharisee. Self-righteous. Thinking you can make your way to God on your own just by keeping all the rules? Not really thinking you need a savior. Well, Simon may be a lesser sinner in some ways. Maybe he's a 50 denarius sinner. He's not like a 500 denarius sinner like this woman. But at the end of the day, he's also got a debt he can't pay. Right, both of the debtors in that story could not pay their debts. And you, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you've gone to church your entire life. Maybe you're outwardly a very moral and upright person. But at the end of the day, you're still a sinner. You're still in a great unpayable debt because of your sin. And so maybe it appears to you, like that person over there has a ten times larger debt than you do, but you're still in debt yourself. Your little sin, it's less than those folks over there, but your little sin is still an entire offense against an infinite and perfectly holy God. And so you, just like that sinner over there, you deserve God's wrath and hell for eternity. Here's the thing, Jesus came to save sinners and that includes sinners who maybe have an easier time realizing that they're sinners in need of salvation like this woman. And that also includes sinners who are righteous people who first have to get beyond that hurdle of self-righteousness and then they have to have their eyes opened to the fact that yeah, I might not be as outwardly contemptible as that sinner over there. Oh, but I'm a great sinner myself. And I need a savior also. The very good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves both kinds of people. An exhibit A of the second group. Just think about the apostle Paul. Right, this guy Simon. Right, Luke describes him as one of the Pharisees. Paul wasn't one of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet God reveals to him his self-righteousness. God reveals to him that he's trusting in his own works. That he needs to instead trust in a righteousness outside of him that comes from Jesus. God opens his eyes to his need for a Savior. And so, yes, Jesus saves really bad sinners, but Jesus also saves the self righteous. Lastly, takeaway number four this is not a statement. This is a question. And the question is this. Do you love him? Do you love him? Jesus makes his pronouncement about the woman. She loved much. He makes his pronouncement about Simon. He loved little. But what about us? And here's the thing. How we answer that question with our words it's really a lot less meaningful than how we answer that question with our lives. I think the most interesting thing about this woman in this story, this woman who loved much, is that in the entire narrative, she doesn't say a single word. Simon speaks. The other guests speak. But this woman doesn't say a single word. But it's her actions that so clearly reveal that she, unlike the rest of them, that she really loves Jesus. And so she's quite the opposite of the kind of person that Jesus rebuked earlier. Remember the Sermon on the Plain? The one who calls him Lord, Lord. The one who says the right things, but then doesn't do what he says. Well, she's the exact opposite. Not a word comes out of her mouth in this story. But she so clearly demonstrates through her actions who her Lord is. And so my question for all of us is do you love him? Better yet, does your life, your your expressions of love for Jesus, your, your heartfelt worship of Jesus, your unqualified obedience to Jesus, does your life show that you love him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and what a great Savior he is. Father, we pray that you would grant to your children just a greater capacity and desire to love and exalt and worship and cherish your Son. And Father, we pray for those in this room who came into this room this morning not knowing you. We pray that you would do a work in their hearts that they might see Jesus as the glorious Savior that he is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.